Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have the pleasure of having on returning guest, my friend and colleague, Rabbi Davidel Weinberg. Rabbi Davidel, thank you so much for coming back on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. My pleasure. I think this is my third time. Third time? Okay. You're, you're, uh, I think you and Rablau are, are tied for okay. being the most popular guest on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. Thank so. you for the invitation. Of course. So um, I thought today we would talk about something which is very much in Yone Dioma. Obviously, we're two days away from Lagba Omer. So Lagba Omer in the Gemara seems to be focused primarily on uh, simply the cessation of the plague that happened uh, to the students of Rebbe Akiva. And all of a sudden, we're able to sort of default back away from the experience of mourning towards like the more uh, broader experience of the Omer, at least conceptualized by the Ramban, being like uh, almost like a Chol Hamoid between Pesach and Shavuot. So therefore, post, you know, uh, Lagba Omer, at least according to some customs, we sort of move back into more festive uh, mood. That being said, you know, over time, Lagba Omer has become synonymous uh, with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and more broadly, the mystical uh, Jewish tradition. So I thought today we would talk a little bit about the nature of mysticism and specifically about the way in which mysticism interacts with the experience of uh, the modern Jew. Let me provide a little bit of context before I get to Yerav Davidal. So I think that many people who uh, study Judaism and study in different yeshivot, uh, the focus of their curricular day is heavily um, um, centralized around the study of Gemara, study of Halacha. And even if people are studying uh, issues of Jewish thought or broader questions of machshava, it tends to be related to, to thinkers that are associated at least more broadly with uh, Jewish rationalism. So for example, people will study the Rambam or Rav Soloveitchik. And even if you're not like in a centrist orthodox setting, right, so maybe you'll study uh, some contemporary uh, Musser thinkers, right? But the idea that like classical texts of Jewish mysticism are going to be at the forefront of the curriculum, I think is something which is not necessarily all that common in, in most yeshivot. And uh, a lot of times, you know, when I talk to students about mysticism, they're sort of surprised to the extent to which mysticism really is a very deep-seated part of our tradition that certainly, you know, didn't start 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It's been around uh, since the time of the Torah. So maybe just to begin with, though, you could provide like a historical framing, right? Think about mysticism from the time of the Torah to today. Obviously, that's a very big topic. But like, what are the origins of Jewish mysticism and uh, sort of how have they evolved over the course of time from, let's say, the mystical traditions of uh, the Torah up until the contemporary mystics of today? Okay. So the contemporary mystics of today, uh, I guess I should start by saying that I am going on two and a half hours of sleep here because I spent... uh, a bunch of hours last night driving with a few friends up to Meron, uh, a car full of six 30-plus-year-olds. Uh, and uh, we drove up to Meron. It took us about two and a half hours to get there. We spent maybe a half hour to an hour there and then another two and a half hours going back. So the idea that, um, and it's already three days before Lagba Omer, I would say there's probably close to 1,000 people there at any given time now, and there'll be you know, upwards of 100,000 people there uh, in the next few days, um, it, the mystical tradition is, is alive and well. 
and Judaism and mysticism go hand in hand. Uh, Jewish mysticism is as old as Judaism itself. And um, we could talk for a while, you know, and there are people who have scholarly uh, takes on the sort of development of, of uh, Jewish mysticism. There's also uh, more internal uh, ways of, of speaking about that, and, and there's quite a bit of overlap between them. But uh, if you go back through the Tanakh, and we'll start, I guess, from there, you see that uh, Jewish mysticism, you know, some people, like you mentioned, the, the, the curriculum that a lot of uh, yeshivot have, for very good reasons, are heavy on, uh, on Gemara and Halacha. Um, and I would say that that's very similar to the idea that in regular school systems, uh, maybe not in Jewish school system, you're going to have a heavy focus on certain elements as sort of prerequisites to getting to higher levels. There's a Mishnah in Chagiga, I'll get to the history in a second, there's a Mishnah in Chagiga, and maybe I'll just get your reaction to this uh, before we get into the actual history and framing of, of the Kabbalistic tradition and the, going all the way from Adam HaRishon to, till today. Um, there's a Mishnah in Chagiga that most people think I'm probably going to reference the Mishnah at the beginning of the second parak, but there's actually the last Mishnah in the first parak of Chagiga, uh, parak Aleph Mishnaches, references the various different parts of the Torah, um, different you know, domains or subjects within the written Torah. Uh, there's a discussion there about Shabbos and uh, several other areas which are like uh, mountains hanging on a, on a hair, a, a thread of hair. Or there's uh, a discussion there about Heter Nedarim, which is really basically not found in the text of the Torah at all. And then the, Torah, and then the, the mission over there describes that there are certain parts, Tuma and Tahara and Avodos Karbonos and, and you know, Dine Mamanos and things like that, which are called Gufe Torah, that are called the, the body of Torah. In fact, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos also refers to the Gufe Torah, Kinim, the laws, the intricate laws of the Karbonos of birds in the Beis HaMikdash, and the laws of Nida, which are very intricate, are called also Gufe Torah there. And the idea that there's Gufe Torah, and again, like I said, we'll get to the history in a minute, but the idea that there's Gufe Torah has been understood by many great thinkers, and perhaps this is a more modern take on the idea. I don't know that if you go back to the Rishonim, this is how they understood Gufe Torah. But the idea that there's Gufe Torah might also imply, and this is certainly the case in Kabbalistic uh, tradition, that there's also something called Nishmasin Da'araisa. There's also something called the soul of the Torah. And in the same way that it's impossible to describe a human being uh, without both talking about their body, about the biology of the human being, and, and thank God we have uh, adequate language to describe that, and also describing the psyche of the human being, or maybe the spiritual consciousness of a human being, this mysterious thing called consciousness, and there's something very mysterious about that indeed. So in the same way that the, the human body, and really everything, has a body and a soul, so in the same way, it's almost completely natural that you would expect that Judaism and the Torah itself should also be part body and part soul, that there's something called the Gufei Torah, which is the, the intricate halachos and the, the text that's uh, more revealed. And then there's going to be that mysterious sort of overlay or underlay of this thing called the soul, which you can sense behind the text, but doesn't necessarily grant itself. And maybe this sort of begins to answer the question of why you don't find this being the, the regular sort of everyday uh, educational uh, model for how people are studying. They're, they're, you need to first have the body before there could be a soul. You know, you don't want to have, but at the same time, you don't want to have one without the other, otherwise you end up either a zombie, you know, a body without a, without a, without a soul inside of it, or a ghost, which is a, a spirit without a body. You want to have some sort of balance between the two of them. It's interesting. Um, I remember I took a class in Bar Ilan on the history of Jewish mysticism, 
And one of the things the professor was trying to argue in the context of the class was that, you know, basically uh, in, the, in the Torah, right, especially through the Nevi'im, right, so the prophetic sense of Judaism being alive, right, through the, through the uh, prophecy of specific individuals is very much the experience of the Jews, right, in the biblical period. And all of a sudden you get to Chazal, right, and we no longer sort of have frontal prophecy. So what ends up happening is, is that we start talking about our experience of religion, right, primarily in analytical terms, right, through Talmud Torah, through the experience of the intellect, through sort of rational categories. And this uh, professor wanted to argue that there's something powerful about mysticism, which in some ways is an attempt to sort of revive uh, the experience of prophetic Judaism, right? There's somehow the sense that, you know, it's not only through cognition, it's not only through analysis, right? But there's something about the experience, right, of, of, uh, of the encounter, which can also be uh, epistemologically significant, right? In many ways, what mysticism is trying to facilitate. And in fact, what's interesting is I was thinking about this as preparing for this year. Remember when I was younger, there was an Avram Fried song uh, that's based on a Gemara, um, that talks about um, um, Rabbi Shmuel, right, dialoguing with uh, certain angels, right, and it has it's a very dramatic tune. And it's interesting because you know you sort of sing that song when you're a kid or when even when you're an adult, and you don't realize the extent to which uh, this sounds seems to be like a classic sort of mystical text. I mean, there's some scholarly debate about the extent to which, like, um, you know, is the origins there in the Gemara itself, or is it from Hechalot literature? But you know, it sort of corroborates this idea that you know even when you're learning Gemara, right, there are allusions to experiences of Tanaim right, that do seem to talk the language of mysticism. I mean, an obvious example is the Arba Nechnesu Lepardes, right? In other words, what, what exactly is going on there, and there's a question there about using the divine name, right? It doesn't seem like when you read the Gemara or different sugyas throughout Shas that sort of talk this language, that we're talking sort of standard, uh, brisker sort of rationalism, but there's something else going on. So now I would just, just if I yeah. can interrupt for a second, I, I remember uh, there was a Chabura that was taking place in, in Queens. I was not a member of that Chabura, but I had some students and friends who were uh, attending it. It was given by Rabbi Muttel Zilber. Rabbi Muttel Zilber is the Stachiner Rebbe. Uh, who operates out of Brooklyn, New York, and he speaks English and, uh, you know, is very fond of uh, sort of like the cross-section of, you know, modern Orthodox, uh, neo-Hasidic sort of uh, revivalist uh, people. So he's, he's, he gives a, a weekly shear in, uh, in Brooklyn. I'm not sure if it's, and in Queens, I'm not sure if it's still going on uh, now. And there was one uh, event, there was a certain shear, he was talking about uh, the 72-letter name of Hashem. And uh, one of the participants, who was not a regular participant, started getting a little bit uncomfortable with the mention of the 72-letter name. And he had the, you know, the gall to raise his hand and be like, you know, I don't know like, about this stuff. This is, seems like kind of out there. And Rav Matel Zilber simply looked at him and he said, like, this is a Rashi. Like, this is, a rashi. Like, this is, this is not, uh, you know, and the idea that we sort of like, you know, there's the, the part of the brain that uh, connects the, the right and the left side, the corpus callosum. You know, the, the, when certain people, when they need to, there, there's uh, sometimes a surgery that people could do to separate the right and the left side of the brain. We don't really want to do that. We don't want to take the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, which is the classic, you know, let's say left side of the brain is more what we'll call the academic or, or uh, sort of uh, categorical thinking, analytical thinking, and the right side of the brain and sort of separate them because there's too much bleed between the two of them, you know, already that you're going to start saying, this makes me a little uncomfortable. Like there's Rashi's all over the place and there's, you know, there's, there's, um, this, is, this is really deeply rooted in our tradition. So you can respond to that, and then we'll go through how deeply entrenched this is, so much so that there were great thinkers, one of the great uh, you know, scholars of the previous millennium, uh, who mentioned 
that perhaps we could look at the Kabbalistic system as the only real theology that comes down as a Masora, and we could talk about that a little bit later also, but that's like a pretty serious statement say everybody. Dean Steinzalt said that the Kabbalistic tradition is the only tradition that really claims to have a Masora going all the way back, as opposed to other traditions which claim maybe the Kabbalistic tradition got lost and then sort of recreating a new tradition through uh, rationalism or through trying to understand maybe a new way of linking up with the prophetic experience, which is more maybe my my, my, my So we can, we'll talk about that when we get to it. It's interesting. I remember that one time we had a Rebbe in Oraita who was an afternoon state Rebbe. I'm not, not going to mention his name only because uh, I didn't ask him for permission, but I remember that he was coming. He's a great Talmud Chacham, and he, uh, he's taught here for, in Oraita for a few years. It was a great experience for the yeshiva. And I remember uh, I asked him, what, what are you teaching? What's your plan for this year for afternoon Seder? He was a Rebbe somewhere else in Israeli yeshiva, but he used to come in here in the afternoon and teach. And he said, I'm teaching uh, Sefer Yitzira. So, you know, I, at first I was like, okay, that's interesting. You know, you know, Savior Yitzir wouldn't be the number one thing I would think instinctively as what, you know, someone would want to teach to Shana Alf guys or Shana Bet guys. But maybe for a few minutes we could talk a little bit about uh, Savior Yitzir. Uh, Savior Yitzir is one of these books where, you know, it, it, it has commentaries on it. You know, the Kuzari is a commentary on Savior Yitzir. There are, 80, there are 80, over 80 commentaries. Right. And, and that's uh, talking about, yeah. Exactly. And it's, again, it's not only by mystics. I mean, Rasadi Gohan right, also has a commentary on uh, Savior Yitzir. And uh, Savior Yitzira is, is really an, it's an amazing uh, work, right? And it, it's a work that in, it assumes that if you sort of, you know, study it properly and sort of understand it with proper uh, intricacy, you'll be able to uh, create a golem, right? And, uh, you know, th this, it's actually not surprising that, uh, actually quite amazing, I think, that uh, when the Weizmann Center in Israel created the first robot, Right? They called it a golem, right? Because there's a sense that you know, the golem sort of has been the way that the Jewish tradition has thought about th sort of things that we can't really create, but, uh, but we create through sort of non-traditional means. So that's a book which, again, it's like, it assumes that like, um, letters are like the foundation of the analysis and somehow like, all parts of the body are connected to the letters. So in other words, the letters are almost like the DNA here. So just talk for a few minutes, if you can, about, about Sefer Yitzira. Uh, again, it's a book that like, it's, it's hard to deny that it's been a huge part of our Masora, meaning... So, you know, just say a few things about, you know, that book. So, so as I mentioned, there, there's more than 80 commentaries that have been written over the years on the Sefer Yitzira. Uh, some people relate to it more as like a grammatical text, uh, how to work through Hebrew grammar. It is very much based on the language of the, the Hebrew alphabet and its relationship, as you mentioned, with uh, time and space and, and, and the body and various different things. It is a highly mystical text and one of the earlier uh, mystical texts. And um, I guess the, the easiest way for me to speak about Sefer Yitzira is to start from a place of my, you know, start from a personal place. Um, when I was maybe 20, I want to say maybe 23, 24 years old, at the YU book sale, no less, um, there was a set of svarim that I had my eye on for a while, not important what it is right now. And my father, who certainly is mystically minded, uh, an eye doctor that he is, and not a rabbi, but uh, someone who's been through a large portion of shas, um, with the help, I'll say, of Art Scroll. He didn't have the luxury of coming to yeshiva and having that opportunity, but has been through a lot, a lot of uh, gemara and, you know, um, is, is a scholar, um, but is deeply drawn to, to mysticism and to Kabbalah. And um, I, <laughs> I, I asked my father if he would uh, sponsor this very large and somewhat expensive uh, multi-volume uh, set that I was, had my eye on. And my father said something very funny. He said, I'll buy it for you if I can also buy you Sefer Yitzira with the commentary of Ravari Kaplan. Now, for, I must admit that for many years, that volume of Ravari Kaplan's Sefer Yitzira sat on my shelf, sort of staring me in the eye and seemed to be uh, very imposing. My own, uh, despite 
maybe my reputation here in yeshiva as being more mystically minded, my own relationship with the Zohar and the Sefer Bahir and the Sefer Yitzira and these more frontally Kabbalistic books is, uh, is sort of coming on the back end of my, of my study. Um, my rule of thumb used to be that if it was quoted in Sifrei Chasidus and in other things, I would look them up inside and maybe even look in the context and sort of familiarize myself with that kind of um, language. And that has helped certainly a great deal. But the Sefer Yitzira, and you know, and I, I believe the Sefer Yitzira, the commentary of Ari Kaplan, goes, uh, it was published, I think, in 1997, uh, 1997, 1998, 1999, something like that. And um, that Sefer, uh, the Sefer Yitzira, with the commentary of Ari Kaplan, is a remarkable historical document, meaning we want to talk about Sefer Yitzira and the reintroduction of that book to sort of like a modern, especially like in, in English, it's a funny thing, you know, sometimes you'll, it happens, I would say every other year in Oraita, maybe not every year, every other year you'll like walk into the base medish, there'll be a kid who's literally reading the Sefer Yitzira with Avari Kaplan, and um, that, that, that sort of uh, interfacing between a person who's deeply drawn towards trying to understand what is, what is this mystical tradition and having it be presented in English is like always like a somewhat of a, a humorous and, and funny thing. But the fact that Rav Ari Kaplan wrote this book and thereby opened up what he really did, um, like he did with so many other things, is he took the sum total of really all of these commentaries and placed it in a way which is completely accessible, totally accessible to somebody who never had sort of this introduction. And one of the things that I think sort of behooves our generation is it's sort of laying there. It's, it, there's no real excuse to say, like, I can't access it. This is, this is something which is so foreign. What he does in the beginning of the Sefer is give a historical sort of uh, backdrop to the entire mystical tradition and, uh, and also to the, to the Sefer Yetzira as well. Sefer Yetzira probably... Um, at least in the in the more classical rabbinic tradition, is attributed all the way back to Avram Avinu, the wisdom of Avram Avinu. There is not really such a sense that Avram wrote it down necessarily himself, although the Rambam himself talks about Avram writing down books. Um, I'm not going to suggest that the Rambam is suggesting that he wrote down Sefer Yitzira, but the, 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 Avram certainly uh, had mystical experiences. The Bris Ben Habsarim plays a very large role in the Sefer Yitzira of the splitting of the various different uh, animals. There are three animals that are split in half, which becomes six, and then you have uh, a bird above and a bird below, and you have other different things, and this becomes the, the, a symbol of the Eser Spheros, of the Ten Spheros. And let's take a step back for a second and just say, okay, there's some, everyone agrees there's something called the Brisbane Absarim, and everyone agrees that there's something very peculiar going on there with the splitting up of animals, and the whole scene is, very, is a very mystical scene. So mysticism goes to uh, Adam Harishon, Noach was a mystic, Avram was a mystic, Yitzchak was a mystic, Yaakov was a mystic, the Shvatim were mystics, all these people were mystics. The prophetic tradition, even in, in the Rambam, the prophetic tradition is the place of mysticism. It's the place where, if we're going to now maybe try to define this word, it's the place where the soul of an individual person can somehow link up with the divine or go through a series of steps in trying and attempting to link up with the infinite, um, whether it's through the active intellect or whether it's through some other means, trying to connect to something beyond oneself is something which you see is happening throughout all of Tanakh before we get to the Sefer Yetzirah's appearance in, like you mentioned before, it's mentioned in, in the Gemara, in Midrashim, in a few places, which, uh, which is a rather early source. And you see the mystical tradition popping up again and again. Like the names of the people who are part of the mystical tradition are the names that we know from the base measures. Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai was a mystic. Rav Nechunni ben Akana, who is supposed to be the author of the, of the Bahir. Whether he was or he wasn't, all the Gemaras that speak about him, there's a certain mystical air. Choni Amago is a mystic. 
the author of Pirkei Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Lezer ben Horkinus was a mystic. All these people, Rabbi Shmuel, like you mentioned before, was a mystic. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon. These people, you can't read the Gemara without seeing that the mystical tradition is very much a part of the Jewish tradition. And what we need to really focus on, which maybe we'll get to next, is so sort of the shift away from the prophetic tradition, which is the early mystic tradition, to what we now have as sort of like a, a, a more structured mystical tradition which is more akin to a book study as opposed to an individual experience. So how exactly that, did that happen? And obviously we need to also speak about the sort of esoteric or hidden nature, the, 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 the part of mysticism which was not available to the masses, which now as we're you know, moving on further in time, it becomes more and more available till we get to this uh, threshold moment. Like, again, this is not probably like a watershed moment, but 1997 where Avari Kaplan is printing uh, the Sefer Yitzir in English for people who don't necessarily even know how to read Hebrew. It's so, you know, it's funny you mentioned sort of like the extent to which uh, mystical tradition is very much part of the experience of the Talmud Bavli. So uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Rabbi Slick Blau, or Shiva Varaita, he's sort of at least in, in, the turn, in the sense of being an archetype, he sort of represents the archetypal uh, rational tradition, at least in our yeshiva. So one of my uh, fun hobbies I like to do is find texts that uh, challenge Rablau's uh, general or rational approach. So I remember I was looking at the Gemara, and the Gemara has this one line where it talks about how Rebbe says, I think it's Rebbe, Rebbe says to his to his uh, children that when he passes away, he wants them to sort of you know make sure that he always has a table set for him on Shabbos. Make right. right. oh, no, that's the question. What's he doing? <laughs> so so there's a comment by Gilyon Yashas where he calls him to say for Hasidim that you know he says basically that he he's going to come back every Shabbos and then he's going to make kiddush right for them right the implication being that somehow not only is he going to make kiddush but somehow he's going to fulfill their obligation which obviously you know has halachic implications about how can it be that someone's not alive right can actually be be motzi you and I started you know asking Rablau how does he sort of make sense of this gemara within sort of a more rational framework but I'll leave that to the next podcast so I'll allow for Rablau to defend himself but one thing I want to transition for a second I just sort of one of the goals of the podcast today is sort of you know broadening people's uh, intellectual uh, horizon in terms of realizing the extent to which and I'm totally with you that mysticism really is so entrenched in terms of what it means to be a Jew. So there, there's a work called the Sefer Shi'ur Koma, right, which is a work which is actually interesting that um, even academic scholars, for example, Professor Saul Lieberman argues that uh, this work called Shi'ur Koma has its roots in uh, the school of Rebbe Akiva, right, in terms of the time of the Mishnah. You mentioned before Rebbe Akiva himself has mystical uh, inclinations. This book is a really fascinating book and obviously if you're somebody who's working within a very sort of formal uh, Maimonidean framework, this book could be problematic. The Rambam himself had a hard time dealing with this book. Rosati Gon also had a hard time sort of making sense of this book in light of uh, rational Jewish thought. But this book sort of talks um, openly about uh, different dimensions of God's body. Right? It talks about measurements of God's body. Now, obviously, this book can be read as a metaphor. But nonetheless, you know, another example, this may not be as well known as the Sefer Yitzira, but it's hard to say, for example, that the Shior Koma is sort of not part of our tradition, right? It's certainly part of our tradition in a real sense. I don't know if you have anything you want to add about specifically about the Sefer Shior Koma, but again, one of the goals here of this podcast is, you know, making people realize that mysticism is not something which was invented recently in Sfat. It really has been with us for a while. And these books, Sefer Yitzira, Sefer Shior Koma, you know, all the great minds of the Middle Ages were dealing with these types of mystical texts. Right. So in terms of the Shir Koma, which again, I've, I've never, like I mentioned before, a lot of these core mystical texts I've never really studied in any rigorous way. Um, part of the reason for that is we do have a tradition of sort of uh, coming into the more mystical side of the tradition through more classic learning, and, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, you know, the idea that the Shir Koma describes God's body, well, so does the Chumash, you know? So, yes, it's not supposed to be taken literally. One of the classic uh, introductory 
Kabbalistic works, uh, which is printed in the introduction to many Kabbalistic works and is printed in the introduction to many Sidurim, uh, especially Sidurim that use the uh, spheros and other Kabbalistic meditations, which do rely on uh, twinning the spheros to different parts of the body, etc., is the Psach Eliyahu. The Psach Eliyahu is uh, part of the Tikkune Zohar. It's not part of the Zohar. And the Tikkune Zohar has a, a teaching there from Eliyahu Anavi, purportedly from Psach Eliyahu. And Eliyahu Anavi warns that uh, these books, especially the books of uh, mysticism, are filled with a Kabbalah. Jewish Kabbalah is filled with talking about different parts of of, uh, of the body, and sometimes we're talking about, you know, things outside, we're not talking about God himself, but we're still talking about supernal realms and parts of the body, and the warning there is, uh, is absolutely clear that we shouldn't take any of these things as the corporeal uh, nature of God, God forbid. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have, we have books like that to just return to what you mentioned before about, uh, you know, mystical texts creeping their way into halachic works. So um, there's a, a well, we have a well-documented um, testimony that, you know, the Chafetz Chaim in Mishnah Bura in a number of places mentions sort of highly mystical things. Uh, things that come to mind off the top of the head is uh, the Chafetz Chaim in, in Mishnah Bura, I think in, in Kuf Chafhe, talks about whether you can count a, a golem to a minion, you know, or maybe that's in Nunhe, and, uh, the, and the Chafetz Chaim and elsewhere talks about, you know, the sort of mystical dance that's taking place during Kedusha when we close our eyes and lift our eyes up to the heavens and raise our feet. These are funny things to do if you're a pure rationalist. You know, again, the details of the mitzvos sometimes devolve into somewhat of an absurd exercise if you don't then layer it with, and again, this is a larger debate in general between uh, different schools of Jewish thought, but the details of, of, you know, of davening and the details of, uh, of shaking a of the not new and these types of things without the overlay of the Kabbalistic tradition, um, and I could say this is where it speaks to, a, you know, maybe a, a, the modern student who's just doesn't want to simply be going about this dance, these, these actions, without having to understand what it is. And the, the thing is that we have the tradition that goes along with it. In other words, it's not like there isn't something to fill in those gaps. The gaps are filled in already by the Kabbalistic tradition. A person just has to go and study uh, that tradition, and then they're able to you know, offset it, and it's, 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 it's there anyway. So to ignore those parts of the halachic tradition that you know, blend in with the Kabbalistic tradition is to, at your own peril, sort of lose the details in the, uh, in the mix. I'll tell you a great uh, citation from the Mishnaburi mentioned about the Mishnaburi sort of referencing Kabbalistic material. So there's a discussion in the Gemara writing, it comes up in the Mishnaburi also about uh, tucking in the tzitzit when you go to a cemetery. So the Mishnaburi, I think, has this case where he talks about what happens if, um, you know, all of the people in the cemetery are children. Right, so if they're all children, so therefore they were never sort of like obligated, right, to wear tzitzit. So like, could you wear uh, tzitzit in in that space? So Mishabur says that uh, you can't do that because you're not sure if they're a reincarnated soul of an adult, right? So if they're a reincarnated soul of an adult, they've had experience sort of the world of obligation. Therefore, it's sort of like you're not being sensitive to that experience to wear your tzitzit and have it drag on the floor, right, in the context of a cemetery. But then he says, what would be the case in the situation where the cemetery was all women, right? So there, well, women are not obligated in wearing tzitzit, so therefore, presumably, it would not in any way be an insult to their experience of obligation. So I don't remember exactly how he sort of rules in that case, but he basically says, I'm pretty sure he says, that it would be okay in that case, right? A cemetery which is all women, right? Because there's nobody who has the obligation, which you can infer from there that in his sort of Kabbalistic sort of working in terms of how reincarnation works, so uh, you can be reincarnated internally within your gender, 
right? But you can't be reincarnated male to women, right? Because he could have said, for example, maybe the woman is a reincarnated man. So you can somehow infer from there that the Mishnah Brewer, in terms of how he conceptualizes reincarnation, he has a view which assumes that reincarnation is only internal to your gender. So it's also like an interesting area where sort of, at least for the Mishnah Brewer, <laughs> these things do make their way into a halachic discourse. We're not, we're not going to get into it now, but that is certainly a das uh, yachid, if that's the case, because intergender... Uh, Gilgulim is something which is very, very sourced in Rizal and in uh, other Sfarim, but we're not going to get into that right now. Okay, think. yeah, I mean, again, my, my knowledge of the inner workings of reincarnation is uh, a lot uh, a, lot, a lot more limited than yours, but I did remember coming across that Mishra Burr and thinking, yeah, you can make an inference here about sort of how he conceptualizes uh, reincarnation. Obviously, the mugging of Ram, right, is someone who's deeply influenced by the world of, of Kabbalah, makes it into sort of uh, his halachic discourse. Maybe we can turn, sort of transition a second away from the mystical texts that are sort of less known, for example, Sefer Yitzira, Sefer Shira Koma, and talk about some of the medieval mystics. I mean, obviously, if you read the Ramban al right, it's obvious that mysticism plays an enormous role, right, in his worldview, um, and there are many books written about the Ramban's theology and the extent to which, you know, he inc- incorporated sort of a, a legalistic orientation along with a mystical orientation. So maybe if we can just move away from uh, the more esoteric works and talk about some of the works of the Rishonim. And think through a little bit about how mysticism uh, plays a role in, in their worldview. We'll sort of hold off on the Rambam for a second, but maybe you could pick a Rishon, right? And think about the way in which mysticism all of a sudden sort of permeates either his biblical interpretation, maybe his halachic reasoning, right? But just sort of move us through a little bit into the world of uh, the more well-known Rishonim. Maybe describe for a few minutes the extent to which mysticism really uh, impacted the way he saw the world. So most people like to pit the Rambam and the Ramban against each other. That's not uh, unfounded. Uh, the Arizal himself did that, speaking of Sharha Gilgulim. In the Sharha Gilgulim, the Arizal has a, uh, for those who are outside of that study, somewhat of a humorous comment probably, uh, where the Arizal suggested that the right and left paya of Adam Harishon uh, are the sole root of the Ramban and the Rambam. And he has a whole dissertation there about how the payas of Adam Harishon uh, correspond to the right side and the left side of the more Kabbalistic, right-minded uh, uh, Ramban, uh, both whose name and, and the Rambam, whose name is also Moshe, both of them are Moshe's, and he has a whole uh, discussion over there. So for people, this notion of, first of all, Adam Rishon having payas, and then number two, these two great rabbis uh, being pitted against each other as the right and left payah of Adam Rishon is, uh, is being thrust into a world which is, you know, which is fantastical for, for a lot of people who haven't studied this. But uh, I actually prefer to put the Rambam uh, against the Ravid. Uh, and I, I do that for a very good reason. I am certainly not the one who, uh, who invented this, um, this sort of like balance between the two of them. But I love to do it because I think it really brings us to a, a proper understanding of where the Rambam sort of fits into this, uh, into this entire discussion. Because obviously the Rambam is a big elephant in the room in terms of the rationalist camp of trying to understand how, how could one sort of grapple with the Rambam. Um, the Rambam and the Ravid obviously are very famous. You know, the Rambam, when he first put out the Mishnah Torah, so it's uh, already considered, uh, you know, uh, perfectly under- understandable that the, the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, which at first was, uh, you know, being burned and subject to, to great uh, suppression, was sort of propped up in, in no small measure by the Ravid's Hasagos on the Rambam. And uh, the Ravid has very sharp criticisms for the Rambam when it comes to the world of halacha. So one of the, my favorite examples that I like to give that sort of just shows the, the sort of love and yet very serious, you know, atvahav sofa, like the Gemara describes, you know, enemies sort of grappling with each other and in the end loving each other, is the Ravid in, um, in the laws of Karban Pesach. The Ram has a famous shita where he talks about 
the carbon Pesach needing to be roasted whole. That's clear from the Gemara that the carbon Pesach should be roasted whole. And there becomes a discussion about whether or not the carbon Pesach should be cooked together with the Gid Hanasha. And the Rambam paskins that the Gid Hanasha should not be extracted prior to cooking because that would take away from the wholeness of the animal. Cutting it open and taking out the Gid Hanasha would somehow be a violation of this ideal that we should have the, the entire thing roasted whole. And uh, so the Rambam describes how when you're eating the carbon Pesach, how to sort of navigate the Gid Hanasha. And there's a halacha there in Hilchas Korban Pesach where the Rambam describes this. And the Ravid on the spot writes, and I'll, I'll read here from a quote that I, I wrote down before, is, Amar Avram b'chai roshi, by, by, the, by the life of my head. Ein iser gadol mizesh yetzla carbon Pesach, a person who roasts the carbon Pesach with the Gid Hanasha and together with other things that the Rambam, certain fats that the Rambam thinks that you should live in, that you should leave in when you're, when you're uh, cooking it. Ve'im ezke ve'ochel Pesach. And if I would be zocha to come to the time when we'd see the Beis Hamikdash and we could eat the carbon Pesach, kaze, and they would bring in front of me a carbon Pesach like the Rambam's carbon Pesach that he leaves in the Gid Anasha and these certain fats, I would drop kick it on the floor in front of him. So the Ravid certainly has uh, strong words for the Rambam. And what's somewhat uh, interesting, and certainly this is uh, found in the scholarly works of, again, not really my field, but um, Moshe Idel has really pointed this out, that the, Ram, that the Ravid, on a certain level, was the bar plukta of the Rambam, not only in the laws of Karban Pesach and in so many other areas in the Mishnah Torah, but also in the world of Kabbalah. Because really the, the working theory for, again, and this is maybe contra other scholars who understand it a little bit differently, and I'm talking here about, this is something which fits very nicely into, I would say, like the, the, the traditional base Medrash view of how Kabbalah sort of came out of you know, its hiding spot. And that is because the Rambam, in the Mornevuchim, um, in the Middle Ages, sort of wrote that the, the Kabbalistic tradition had been lost and that he was going to try to reconstruct it using Aristotelian metaphysics. And all of a sudden, there were all these uh, rabbis in Spain and in, uh, in Provence and in other places who said, whoa, hold on a second. And the Ravid, you know, operating in Provence, said uh, the Rambam is saying that the, the Kabbalistic tradition has been gone. And the same way the Rambam said that you should leave in the Gid Hanasha, and the Ravid took very great... Uh, exception to that and said I would throw it on the floor, that I would said that I would do the same thing with your, uh, with your tradition of how you understand uh, metaphysics, how you understand this whole nature of, of, the, of the mystical, which the Ramam certainly has a mystical, if you ever read more in Nebuchim, there's, there's certainly mystical chapters in there. And the Ravid came along and said, well, what do you, what do you, I'm not sure exactly what you're saying, that we lost the tradition and that you have, you know, you're going to reconstruct it because I have the tradition right here. And that's really where you begin to see some of these things coming out in the open. And um, the Ravid and his son, Rabbi Yitzchak Sagi Nahar, and uh, the students that come after that, you know, and then that's when you start to have, you have the Ramban and Rabbeinu Bechaya and all these names that we recognize from our study of Chumash and our study of, uh, and the Rashba and all, again, these are, these are classic names of, of, uh, of the, the, the greatest of the greats of the rabbinic elite, that they're all sort of coming out and saying, you know, the, the Kabbalistic tradition is alive and well, and we have it, and we haven't been saying it uh, out loud because it's an esoteric tradition, but if you're going to claim that we don't have it anymore and you're going to sort of uh, claim that we could, so to speak, eat the Gid Hanasha or whatever the equivalent would be in, in, in theological terms, then we're going to come out in full force and we're going to show you what the Kabbalistic tradition really is. And that, in a certain way, is a funny way that the Rambam is sort of responsible for the coming out of the Kabbalistic tradition from its obscure hiding spot. There's an article that was just published fairly recently on uh, the Lairhouse by a rabbi named David Fried. Apparently there's a book, uh, I read the review, I didn't read the book itself, it's a book called Moses and Abraham Maimonides, Encountering the Divine, by a scholar named Diana Lobel. And um, 
what he tries to do in this, in this book, or what, the, what she tries to do in this book, and what David, Rabbi David Fried tries to sort of do in the essay, is sort of reconceptualize the extent to which uh, the Rambam, or the, sort of like the archetypal, mod, archetypal model of the Rambam being simply rationalist. Right? Is that really true? He tries to contrast that, obviously, with the Rambam's son, right? The Rambam's son, Rabbi Rambam, a Rambam, right, is a very interesting personality, and he's somebody who's very much sort of open, I think, to Sufism and sort of the larger sort of mystical uh, experience. So she, he, he tries to sort of frame a little bit about maybe we are sort of like overly pigeonholing uh, the Rambam here. But what's interesting is if you think about sort of like how Judaism evolved. So I was listening to a podcast not that recently where I think it was Rabbi Breitowitz made a comment that um, in terms of thinking about how mysticism sort of became part of our tradition, he said that there was a, a school of thought in Yemen. I think they're called the Dordea, right, who were very much opposed to the work of Kabbalah. They were very much committed to a reading of the Rambam that assumed that, you know, Kabbalah is really problematic from a philosophical perspective, and therefore they sort of outright rejected uh, Kabbalah as a legitimate source. He even mentioned that Rav Kapach, right, who was one of the great uh, Yemenite sages of the previous generation, was also adamant that he was uh, sort of maintaining his uh, grandfather's view that the Zohar and the Kabbalistic tradition really doesn't have uh, firm roots, right, in sort of normative uh, Judaism, at least post uh, the Rambam. But what's interesting, and Rabbi Breitowitz, I thought, did a good job sort of articulating this, is that, you know, obviously if you're in that school, let's say if you're in the Rav Kapach school and you have that Masorah, that's sort of one way to think about it. But even though, you know, irrespective of whether you're right, whether uh, Rabbi David Fried is right, whoever it is, right, um, there certainly is, there certainly are different models for thinking about Judaism as a mystical tradition versus a rational tradition. But it seems to me, at least, and Rabbi Breitowitz also sort of corroborated this, is that if you move forward into um, Judaism in the modern period, it seems like it's undeniable that mysticism won the day, right? It's hard to think of any contemporary thinker, for the most part, who isn't deeply influenced by mystical Jewish thought. I mean, I'm not only talking about Hasidim. I'm talking about even pre-Hasidim, the Ari, right, the Ramchal. When you get later on uh, in Jewish history, obviously you have the Baal Shem Tov and the Balatanya, even within the world of the Misnagdim. I mean, you know, people will say things like, oh, the Vilna Gon was a rationalist. Well, that's just, you know, I think the Vilna Gon published more in Kabbalah than he did on Halacha, right? So the Vilna Gon was a deep Kabbalist. Chaim of Voluzhner is a profound Kabbalist. If you go to the, you know, even more modern period, obviously you have the Babich Rebbe and Rav Hutner and you have Rav Cook, right? And again, Rav Salvejik is complicated, right? In other words, there have been scholarly articles written about Rav Salvejik and his relationship to mysticism. And certainly Ubi Misham, you know, is a different type of work than, let's say, halachic man. But what's sort of amazing to me, I'm curious if you have any insights onto this, is like sort of how do we get to this point, right? We're talking here for the past half an hour or so, 40 minutes, about, you know, all these different mystical texts and, you know, the extent to which mysticism has been so deeply rooted in our tradition. And admittedly, there is a counter-narrative by the Dordea and Rav Kapach, and that's out there. But, like, how do we get to a point where, you know, people are sort of, you know, thinking about Judaism as a sort of hyper-rational model, right, and not giving credence to the Kabbalistic tradition when, like, you don't have to be a big lamdan to know that, you know, almost all the contemporary uh, Bali Machshava are, are sort of deeply rooted in tradition, even though you're right that mysticism is an esoteric tradition, certainly post the advent of Hasidim and Hasid, Hasidus and Hasidim, right, they did try to sort of spread um, mystical teachings to a larger audience. So sort of, you know, how did we get here, right? How did we get to a point where all of a sudden people think, oh, mysticism... That's sort of for like, you know, Tzfat, Kabbalist. But like we, you know, that's, that's not for us. So how do we sort of get to this space? Okay, so first of all, just to go back for a minute. Um, whenever you're going to have, there's a, there's a sefer called Shomer Amunim. Shomer Amunim is a, uh, a really wonderful defense of the Kabbalistic tradition. Uh, it's a fictionalized conversation between two individuals, one representing the intellect and the other one representing the tradition. 
And I think, again, not to pick uh, fights with, uh, you know, Yemen, Yemenite Jews, that's a bad idea in any, in any situation. Um, but whenever you're going to have someone who claims to have a tradition, and it's not just any tradition, but we're talking about a tradition which is uh, coming through the greatest rabbis of, of the Jewish tradition in the revealed aspects of Torah. So if you say, well, the Kabbalistic tradition is not a, is not a genuine tradition, it's not a real tradition, and then you look and you see that the Ravid and the Ramban and, uh, like I said before, Rabbeinu Bechaya and Rabbeinu Yonah and all of these other uh, major thinkers and halachic decisors of the Jewish tradition were Kabbalistically minded and had a tradition, then of course the Kabbalistic tradition is going to win the day because you have, and this is what the Shomer Munim sort of argues at the very beginning of the Sefer, is that if you have one tradition that claims we don't have the tradition and the other one says we do have the tradition, then the one that claims to have the tradition of course is going to be the one that is going to win the day because you can't win the day without the tradition. That's exactly how you know, Judaism works. If somebody claims, well, we lost the rabbinic tradition and we have to re, you know, we have to figure out the halacha again, and then you have, right, and, and we have sort of parallels to this. I'll be careful where I tread, but like, we have parallels to this. We don't really have a clear rabbinic tradition and we're going to reconstitute it. I'm talking about the halachic tradition. And then you have another tradition that's like, well, actually, we have a very uh, wonderful halachic tradition and, and, and we could show it to you. So, of course, the one with the tradition is going to win. Uh, is going to win the day. And, and so it's not really a surprise that we find the proliferation, especially, and again, even in the most uh, hardened rationalist thinkers of the day, that more becomes like a proclivity than a way of being able to say, well, we don't have this tradition. The tradition is, is deeply rooted in the, in the greatest rabbis, and you mentioned some of them, but we could make a list of a hundred others, and these are the greatest rabbis of, of the Jewish tradition. Then you put into that also the fact that the Jewish tradition is a mystical tradition by its very origins. Like we mentioned at the outset, that we're a prophetic tradition. We have prophecy, and prophecy is mystical. You could explain it rationally. The Ramam does try to explain this in sort of rationalistic terms. But the mystical tradition, Eliyahu Hanavi was a mystic. Elisha was a mystic. David and Shlomo were mystics. Shmuel Hanavi was a mystic. These people were mystics. And so to be able to then divorce that tradition, be like, oh, that was from then, and now we don't have that anymore, there's, there's a, quite, again, a question of focus, and I, I'm, I'm into that. That's, that's great. The idea that there's a, you know, chacham adif minavi, and that there's some great benefits to having the uh, rabbinic tradition blossom in the way that it did out of the prophetic tradition, and to move sort of away and, and to twin, because maybe there's a leaning too much towards prophecy and not enough towards the details, but the two of them work together, and there's no way to, to sort of ignore that. Um, why it is that nowadays you have sort of two camps where maybe you have some people who are a little more squeamish and they're more rationalist, or maybe have certain qualms, uh, academic and otherwise, with sort of the origins of, of the Zohar and the origins of certain mystical texts. And part of that is out of sort of uh, making these assumptions that somehow if the Zohar contains, I I'll tell you this, in the past maybe two years or so, uh, I've started studying passages from the Zohar inside. I'm getting closer to 40. My 39th birthday was uh, just two days ago. And, um, and there, there's certain ways where I feel comfortable doing that. You know, there are certain uh, people who are writing today who will take a small chunk of the Zohar on the Parsha and they'll, they'll write about it. And in order to prepare for what I'm going to read in terms of these uh, thinkers who are, who are writing now, so I'll, I'll sometimes study the Zohar. And I'm shocked to see that the classical texts on the Zohar, I'm talking about the Matok Midvash, I'm talking about the, the Baal HaSulam, and some of these more, you know, that open up the, the Zohar for the, maybe for the modern thinker. So these classical texts on the Zohar, it's almost always the case in every Parsha that you'll have a chunk of text where the Matok Midvash, who is certainly within the traditional uh, base medrash of the Kabbalistic uh, study, 
will say, oh, the next few paragraphs are clearly not in the, the regular language of the Zohar. And as soon as you sort of take a step back and we stop like this, uh, you know, like every word was written by Rabbi Shemar Yechai. No, no words were written by Rabbi Shemar Yechai. Rabbi Shemar Yechai instructed his students to write it down. And it's not the Bible. So it's not so uh, difficult to understand that maybe there were other things that were moved in. There are whole parts of Mesechus Kedushin that are added after the time of the closing of the Gemara. So why would we think the Zohar would be any different? That there, you know, it's a living text that has other things creeping into it. You know, we, again, we can talk about that. But going back to this question of why it is that people are squeamish, in addition to the sort of like, what's the authenticity of the origins of these, of these Kabbalistic texts, I would say you can't have this conversation between the two of us without talking about, and we don't have to talk about it in depth, but sort of like the few times where the Kabbalistic tradition or non-tradition, uh, non-traditional Kabbalah has sort of like burned the Jewish people. And I'm talking, of course, about false messianism and these other sort of movements that um, under the, the sway of sort of charismatic figures who are using the esoteric and the mystical and the, and the transcendent to, to make an upswell of excitement about uh, of Mashiach and, and about other things, and then ultimately having a disastrous sort of crash and burn at the end of the whole thing has created a, a certain maybe uh, positive uh, skepticism or, or cautiousness with the Kabbalistic uh, tradition. And there's plenty of room for the Kabbalistic tradition to be used in the wrong way, just like the halachic system could be used in the wrong way. And I think you can't really have this conversation without talking about that uh, angle of the, of the Kabbalistic sort of trauma of false messianism and, and some of these other things. Yeah, I mean, it's there's uh, I think uh, Rablau, just I mentioned Rablau before. He, he wrote an article. Um, he's an interesting uh, personality in this sense because, on the one hand, he's very committed to a worldview which is based to a certain degree in uh, classical rationalism. On the other hand, he's very attracted to thinkers like Rabbi Coin Cohen uh, of Lublin, right, who himself is a, is a Hasidic uh, thinker, even though he has Lithuanian roots, right. And Rablau wrote an article, I'm pretty sure, talking about how. Um, Hasidim or Hasidut in general um, sort of started to translate the categories of Zohar, of Kabbalah, of mysticism, um, less from the perspective of abstract sort of theology or sort of like trying to explain like the divine metaphysics in terms of how the world works and translated it more in terms of like a psychological system, right? In terms of a system of actually, you know, trying to understand, right, how we can better ourselves, right, by utilizing uh, mystical practices. And you mentioned before uh, the Baal HaSulam, right? And the Baal HaSulam, not that I have that much experience with it, but from my limited experience with the Baal HaSulam, right, you get the same sense, right, that there is an attempt to sort of like use Kabbalistic categories, not so much in their sort of original, right? Although he may do that also, I just don't know, but heavily with an attempt to sort of like, you know, generate ethical betterment, right? So I think that like, you know, one of the ways that we've sort of moved away from some of the risks that you mentioned before of sort of Kabbalah going sort of, un, you know, off the rails, right, is by sort of saving the teachings that are really sort of abstract and esoteric for people who are deeply committed to it in a scholarly sort of uh, sense. And then for everybody else, myself included, right, we're sort of using the categories Categories in a way, right, that actually sort of make our lives, our religious lives, uh, significantly more meaningful. The one thing I will just say, just sort of one, add one piece here, I, I do think sometimes part of the risk of the Kabbalistic tradition is, you know, oftentimes I use the analogy, I was talking to one time about this with my own uh, kids, is that, is that when you think about sort of like Kabbalistic uh, concepts that make their way into halachic norms, right? In other words, how much we have to be concerned with Kabbalistic ideas that make their way into sort of a halachic practice. So I, I remember one time I heard this from somebody, I forgot who it was from, but he made the analogy where he said, like, think about germs, right? And he said, like, if you know, if you could see all the germs that were sort of around the room or sitting right now, right, you, you would 
be totally freaked out. You wouldn't touch anything, right? So God constructed the world in a way that he makes you aware intellectually of germs, right? But he doesn't give you exposure to them all the time because you'd probably go nuts, right? So this guy wanted to argue basically that it's similar in terms of understanding sort of just like there's the world of the physical world, there's the world of the spiritual world, right? And, you know, some of the Kabbalistic material is tapping us into the spiritual germs, so to speak, right? In other words, the world that exists that we can't see. So part of the, the beauty of studying Kabbalist material is not so much focusing on the aspects we can't see, right, but sort of with an awareness that there's stuff out there. And the question we come, becomes, how do we use these sort of models for personal and, uh, and spiritual uh, betterment? Maybe we could just sort of end by thinking for a few minutes about, you know, if you had to you know, advocate for, uh, say, somebody who wants to get access to the world of the mystical, right, through some type of text, right? So obviously, as you alluded to before, you could read the entire Talmud Bavli and you get access to some of these texts. But more frontally, right, can you recommend a book that would sort of give people um, a serious, at the same time accessible, uh, overview of, of Judaism in its most mystical iterations? So there definitely are books uh, that exist. I would say, as with uh, the halachic tradition as well, the best way to do this is to find a competent teacher who is a grounded, healthy person who is an expert in the field and who can help you to navigate and give you books and other things in real time that are, uh, that are helpful for you. Um, you know, again, like I mentioned before, Rav Ari Kaplan is undoubtedly one of the great scholars of uh, the previous generation, of sort of our generation, who has translated a number of Kabbalistic works in a way which is very accessible. It's, again, something you're going to probably have to hide under your cover just because it still is, has this kind of taboo type of thing. You're walking around with a Sefer Yetzirah, people are sort of looking at you funny. Um, and that's why, you know, you have to be careful exactly how you do that. Um, but more and more, it's become acceptable reading books like Inner Space uh, that Ravari Kaplan wrote and his commentary on the Sefer Yetzirah. Those two, on purely, if we were talking about Hasidus, there's other things that are introduction, but those two are excellent introductions to, uh, to Kabbalah. Um, I would say just to go back to that conversation about sort of being careful uh, about the way that Kabbalah could be misused, um, just two things that sort of come to mind that I wanted to make sure I made it into this conversation. A little bit of a delicate uh, muscle that was given. I mentioned of uh, Adin Steinsaltz before, who certainly was a mystically minded person who was connected to Chabad in some ways. Um, somebody once asked Rabbi Steinsaltz to, you know, to speak for a, a bit about especially since he, was, he, he wrote The 13 Petal Rose, which actually is maybe another book that is a good introduction that's way less uh, jargon-heavy and a little bit, you know, Ravari Kaplan had a sort of academic streak to him, and uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz is maybe a little bit more um, poetic in his writing and so therefore maybe accessible for a different type of person. Um, so somebody once asked Rabbi Steinsaltz about the sort of like, what's the difference between uh, Kabbalah you know, what, like what we've been speaking about, and as I mentioned before, to do it through a teacher, because the word Kabbalah means to receive, and, you know, the sort of uh, what's out there now is what we could say with the Havara of Kabbalah. And somebody asked Rav Steinsaltz to sort of speak about the difference between Kabbalah and Kabbalah, um, and the, the iteration of, you know, pop Kabbalah out there in the world. And he said a very sharp language, which I think if we use a little bit of Rav Soloveitchik's language, we could sort of maybe help to explain how, what the healthiest way of going about studying Kabbalah really is, and really is a, is a rule of thumb for myself, and I would say probably all the other people who are more mystically minded in our base medrash and its, you know, its, its circles. Um, and what he said, which is, uh, again, a, a bit of a, a harsh language, is he said that the difference between Kabbalah and Kabbalah is the difference between 
uh, marriage and pornography. That's what he said. And really the linchpin, the difference between marriage and pornography is the difference between commitment and uh, just the raw excitement without any sort of like anything tethering you down. And Rosalvechik in Family Redeemed, where he speaks about sort of like the redemption of, of that part of life, of the, the, the more uh, animalistic urges and the reproductive urges, so Rosalvechik over and over again, in, and really everywhere, the, the sort of like buzzword that Rosalvechik uses in the redemption and the remedial aspect of anything to do with the more animalistic part of, of uh, human behavior, is that sacrifice and or submission to some higher thing is going to save it. So the notion of you know, having a ksuba be a prerequisite to intimacy between a husband and a wife is obviously something which is, uh, is very important in terms of recognizing how the, the way that this intimate act becomes something which is kadosh, it's kedusha, is, uh, is something that is very much bolstered in a sacrifice or uh, a submission to something beyond one's own hedonistic urges. And the same thing is true of the Kabbalistic system. For a person who studies Kabbalah because it's interesting or it seems popular or maybe it gives you deep insights into your psychology, but it's not rooted in any way in a halachic sort of uh, submission to something else, is very much like being in a, you know, in a relationship where there's no real commitment aspect that holds you down. And that's where the Kabbalistic tradition can go off the rails. To the degree that a person recognizes that the same Rav Yosef Cairo who was a mystic is the same Rav Yosef Cairo who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, and the same Ravid who was a mystic is the same Ravid who wrote his Asagos of the Rambam, a person will be able to navigate that in a way where their relationship with the Kabbalistic and the mystical system will be more like a marriage and less like the other thing that Rav Steinsatz was talking about. You know, Rabbi Ari Kaplan, I think, is actually a perfect bridge because he himself, I think, also was a physicist, right? So I think that, like, his knowledge of uh, hard sciences combined with his mastery of uh, Kabbalah actually is, like, an amazing way to sort of access the mind of somebody who was sort of living in both worlds, right? He was somebody who was deeply committed to the Kabbalistic prophetic tradition. He's also somebody who was um, deeply involved in uh, the intricacies of the scientific endeavor. And that may be, like, a perfect person, especially for somebody who's skeptical and thinking, oh, my God, you know, this mysticism stuff sounds a little weird. Well, knowing that uh, the person who you're learning from is somebody who very much had his head deeply uh, rooted in the world of science, I think, is sort of a powerful way to engage tech. He's also an incredible scholar. Like, incredible scholar, yeah. Every footnote is manuscripted. Yeah. Every, you know, it's, it's funny, I mentioned before the class I took at Barilan. So the class I took at Barilan, actually, I don't even know if the professor was, was from, but I do remember that he dedicated the whole class to Ari Kaplan. And he said that someone should write a dissertation on Ari Kaplan. He said the problem with Ari Kaplan in terms of writing dissertation is that you'd have to be such an extraordinary scholar in both Kabbalah and physics. That there's just so few people who could even have the sort of like the, the capacity to master those two disciplines and then analyze Ari Kaplan's approach to those two things that it would just be too overwhelming. If I could just add one last thing just to, to close. Uh, Rebekah Nagain has a book. Uh, it's called Lihitorer Liom Chadash. And uh, it's actually translated in English, I think called like Be Becoming Blessed or Be Blessed Becoming. So this actually is an amazing work um, on the Parsha. And it, aside from being extraordinarily eclectic in terms of the source material, it has a lot, a lot of references to Kabbalistic material. In fact, I remember Rablau, actually Rablau getting a lot of uh, press on this podcast today. He wrote a great review of this book called The Modern Orthodox Kabbalist, where he tries to explain sort of how Rav Yaakov Nagain, on the one hand, is very committed to sort of a, a broader um, intellectual library that has a lot of mystical works associated with it. At the same time, he is coming from a place uh, deeply rooted in centrist orthodoxy, and his reading of the Kabbalistic sources really is unique and innovative. And I think that's also a great book that isn't like too heavy, but at the same time, it does give you access to a lot of the material and makes you appreciate the extent to which the material can be integrated within a much more sort of holistic uh, religious worldview. So, Rivdaro, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, wishing everybody. Hey, I don't even know what you say. What do you say on Lagba Omer? You don't 
say, you don't, certainly don't say Chag Sameach, right? A good yantif. A good yantif, right? But the irrespective of whether you're a Kabbalist or whether you're a Dordea a rationalist, right? I think we could all agree that uh, everybody can relate on some way to the experience of the Rashbi and uh, Lagba Omer. So whether you say good yantif or whatever it is, wishing everybody <laughs> a, uh, a festive and meaningful Lagba Omer. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita. <laughs>